We'll be reading from Romans, or in Romans, chapter 2, page 940 in the Pew Bible. Verses 1 to 16. Romans 2, verses 1 to 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mel. Good morning, friends. Great to be with you today. If you're visiting with us today, just know that I am not the pastor here. I'm just the guy that is bringing the message for this morning. I'm uh, Paul Randolph. I serve as a fire and police chaplain and um, pretty much retired from full-time paid ministry. So uh, that's who I am, and it's great to be with you today. Well, wasn't that a happy passage this morning? One that uh, gets us all smiling, but there's a lot of truth here that we're going to mine today. Imagine you're driving along the road, uh, and you need to get moving to an appointment. Maybe it's a job interview. Maybe it's a doctor's appointment. 
and you want to get there on time. In fact, you want to get there early. And as you're driving along, you get behind this Yahoo who, first of all, they're not doing the speed limit. They're just kind of cruising along, maybe 10 miles under it. And you see that they're wavering a little bit on the road. And you're thinking, what is with this person? Come on, get moving. I got places to be. And finally, when the road opens up and you're able to kind of get around them, you look over and what are they doing? They're on their phone, <clears throat> texting or talking or whatever. And you're like, you moron, get off your phone. I got places to go. <clears throat> and God loves you. <clears throat> well, you get to your appointment and it goes well. And the person says, look, we'll text you tomorrow and let you know uh, how things are going, whether it's a job interview or the medical doctor. And so the next day, you're driving along, and you hear your phone go ding, and you're thinking, ooh, I wonder if that's, if that's, if that's the text I'm thinking it is. And what do you do? You hypocrite, you take out your phone, and now you're the one driving too slow, and we ring all over the road. Uh, that's just one example of what our passage is going to talk about today. And, and I want to ask you, when was the last time that you were a hypocrite? And notice I didn't say if, I said when. Because every one of us in this room is, in God's sight, a hypocrite. We all do things that we hold not ourselves to, but we hold others to. And so, whether you are old, whether you're young, no matter who you are, you have to deal with this truth that we all hold each other to a different standard than we hold ourselves to. Now, last week, we saw how God's wrath uh, is poured out on unrighteousness because the unbeliever refuses to acknowledge God's existence and lordship, and so they suppress the truth, which is revealed by God in creation and results in their futile thinking and turning away from the Lord. Verse 32 of chapter 1 that Pastor Lou shared with us last week, ends with these ominous words. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And today we're going to see how God's righteous judgment falls on every person because everyone has broken the law of God. God is holy. And when it comes to his standard of judgment on sinners, he cannot, he will not curve his final judgment. So turn with me to Romans 2 if you haven't already. Because my message for today is that God doesn't curve the final. Remember when you were in school and you had that final exam and you're not quite prepared for it? And so you're, you're, you're going into that exam and you're just hoping and praying that nobody else is prepared for it either. So that God or, or for, so that your teacher will curve that final exam. I remember an OT exam I had with uh, Dr. Ray Dillard. And the night before, we had all this rain, and my basement flooded, and I spent most of my night not studying, but trying to clean that mess up. And I went into that exam 
hoping and praying that Dr. Dillard would do the one thing he never did, which is curve an exam. And lo and behold, he didn't curve it. But I still passed by the grace of God. So let's look at uh, chapter 2 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. There are the opening words. Paul pulls no punches. There are no extenuating circumstances. There is no free pass. There's no bargaining with God. And so he continues, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that judgment, the judgment of God, rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, sin runs very deep in the heart of every person. So Paul focuses on the hypocrisy that we have when we judge others and then do the very same thing ourselves. You see, it's not just acts of unrighteousness that we may do. It is the attitude. It is the mindset we are all afflicted with, and that is pride. Pride. We walk around thinking that we're better than everybody else and that we're better than we really are. And so we have this double standard and we apply a harder standard of the conduct of others than we apply to ourselves. And when we do that, we think to ourselves, oh, I'm not that bad. I mean, you pick up the Philadelphia Inquirer, or you go on the television, or you go online, and you look at some of the horrific things going on in our world, and you say, well, I would never do that. Proverbs 16, 2 tells us, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but God weighs the spirit. And this was especially true of the Jewish people of Paul's day. And that's one of the audiences Paul's addressing here in Rome. They were thinking, well, we are the people of God. We are the chosen ones. And so we are morally superior to those around us, the Gentiles, or as he mentions at one point here, the Greeks, which you can just uh, consider being the same as any non-Jew. We are morally superior. We have the Torah. We have the law. And we're better than these heathens. But then you also have among the Gentiles, especially those who were Roman citizens of that day, who believed that they were superior to everybody else. I am a Roman citizen, and Rome has conquered the world. All roads lead to my capital, Rome. Well, you see, God's judgment is not based on our deluded, subjective view of ourselves. As you see in verse 2, his judgment is based on truth. And that truth is that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And that same pride is found today. From the criminal to the pastor. We are all, as Pastor Lou said last week, people with a PhD in rationalizing. We think we are better than we really are in God's sight. Let me give you two examples. One comes from the roaring 20s. And one of the great mobsters of all time, Scarface Al Capone. Al Capone was a notorious gangster. He even made the list of the most wanted criminals of that day. 
he oversaw an empire of prostitution and uh, drugs and alcohol sale and importation that was illegal that in that day was worth about 100 million dollars today it would be worth over a billion dollars he was a hardened killer you get a picture of him if you ever see that movie the untouchables uh, with kevin costner starring as elliot ness and he would say this about himself you ready for this here we go when the authorities were closing in on him he would say this i have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures helping them to have a good time i haven't done anything to hurt anyone that is self-delusion second example comes from my years of counseling uh, particularly of pastors and missionaries when i worked at uh, CCEF, Christian Counseling Educational Foundation, that was one of my specialty areas, working with pastors and missionaries. Sadly, I dealt with pastors and missionaries at times who got caught up in an illicit affair. And without exception, every pastor or missionary who came to talk to me about this moral failure would say the same thing. I never thought I could do that. Or flip side of the same coin, I thought I was above that sin. And I have to admit to you folks, I thought the same thing about myself. <clears throat> Until the sixth or seventh guy walked into my office saying that very thing. And the Spirit of God convicted me, Paul, you think that about yourself. You think you're above that sin. You think you could never do that. <clears throat> and so I confess that pride to the Lord. <clears throat> and began to change my way of thinking to I am just as capable of committing any sin as anyone else and that caused me to change how I did ministry particularly with members of the opposite sex and so I put in certain policies and and self guidance that would keep me from winding up where these brothers in Christ wound up but this passage also answers a very important question people often have about the fairness of God's judgment. Have you ever shared your faith? And when you got to the point where you said, you know, you need to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, the person objects and says, whoa, wait, wait a minute. What about the people in this world who never heard about Jesus? They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a pastor or a missionary. How is God fair in judging them if they never heard about Jesus? Now, there's several ways to answer this question. Let me just give you one that has helped me. Imagine that we are at the final judgment of God. And imagine that everyone has an invisible moral recording device hanging around their neck. And that moral recorder only goes on when someone makes a moral judgment. If it's a issue of taste, like I prefer chocolate ice cream to vanilla ice cream, the recorder doesn't record that. But if you say, you shouldn't have lied, or that person shouldn't have stolen, that's wrong, the recorder goes on. 
all right? So among the people who do not know Christ, we have two groups at this final judgment. One have heard the gospel and have refused to repent in faith. The other group are the people who have never heard the gospel. They don't know of Christ. They never had a Bible. And so they get a group of their lawyers together, and they come before God, and they say, wait a minute, God. How can you judge us when we never heard a Bible? We never had a Bible. We never heard the gospel. Based on this passage, I can imagine God answering, okay, I see your point. I will set aside my perfect law, my perfect standard of judgment, and instead judge you based on what you proved that you knew of my law because you applied that standard of conduct to someone else in judging them. And then to the horror of everyone in that group, including the attorneys, God presses the play button on each of their moral recorders. And to their horror, they hear the way they judged others as now being the basis of God's judgment on them. So forget about God's perfect law for a moment. We can't even live up to the standards we hold others to. And that's the point of these first three verses. We have no excuse. With verse 4, he continues on this theme. He says, He will render each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Excuse me, oh, verse 4. I, I jumped to verse 6. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you were stirring up for yourself wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here in verse 4, Paul is addressing his fellow Jews who relied on their historic relationship with God and their covenant with him to shield them from his judgment. They had experienced God's greatness and his kindness, forbearance, and patience in the past. And so they presumed that this would give them a get-out-of-God's-judgment-free card for their present sinfulness. But you see, the real issue here isn't their pedigree. It is their hardness of heart. And that hardness of heart has kept them from humbling themselves, repenting of their sins, and coming to faith in their only hope, which was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so they lived their lives in this smug self-assurance that they were good people, that they, in fact, in contrast, were stirring up God's wrath and will be in for a horrific surprise on the day of judgment. They were living by the gospel of, well, I'm good enough. This view says, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I do good things. I pay my taxes. I've never killed anyone. I've been helpful. I serve in my church. I mean, I got a lot of good here. Won't God just forget about the bad? Well, again, God is that holy, righteous judge. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you decide to make an omelet for breakfast or maybe for lunch when you leave here today. And this is going to be quite the omelet. You're going to use four eggs. I mean, this is a super omelet. So you crack open the first three eggs. They're fresh. They're, they, they look great. And then you get to the fourth egg, 
and you crack it open and it's green and slimy and smelly and disgusting. Are you going to whip those four eggs into an omelet and cook it for yourself? No way. Why? Because the one rotten egg has impacted the three good eggs for the worse. And yet we expect God to ignore those things that we have done and said in thought that are outside of his will. There is no excuse and there is no escape. So let me ask, what is the attitude of your heart today? Are you sitting there with that smug attitude of thinking how good you are compared to the people around you? Do you realize the depth of your hypocrisy and the extent of your sin? Well, the second point Paul's going to make in this passage is that God is truly an impartial judge. He's not only a perfect judge so that we are without excuse, he is an impartial judge. There's no favoritism, there's no bribing, there's no compromise at his bar of judgment. And that picks up for us in verse 6, where we see that there is no partiality with God. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Paul makes the point that what we do, how we act, reveal the condition of our heart as either saved or unsaved. For those who do good from a heart that is born again, there will be glory, as we see here, and honor and peace. But Paul pulls no punches here. For those who are self-seeking and do evil from a heart that is not born again, that is not saved, there will be wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. These are strong words that describe a frightful experience in God's judgment. And so we need to be clear in understanding, though, that Paul is not saying that we are saved by our actions, because a, a quick reading of that may, may imply that for some people. He makes this point throughout his letters. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of your it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul is basically saying here what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, where he says, you shall know them by their fruit. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 16, Paul addresses the false, uh, Jesus addresses the false prophets. And he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The good fruit which is the product of a good tree, 
just simply reflects the condition of that tree. Conversely, the bad tree with the bad fruit is simply a reflection of the condition of that tree. And now Paul drives his point home about the impartial and inescapable reality of God's judgment by now referring to not only our actions, but now our conscience. Here we see the next nail in the judgment coffin. Paul began by pointing out that God can judge us based on how we judge other people. Then he demonstrated that he can judge us based on what our actions reveal about the condition of our heart. Now he shows that whether or not you have God's law, he can still be impartial in judging you. How is that? By how you violate your own conscience, your own sense of right and wrong. And here's where your ability to rationalize can really get, into, get you into trouble. We have a, a member of our extended family who believes very strongly that Christians must not go to movies on Sundays. If you go to the movies on Sunday, you are in sin. But when this member of our extended family goes to the movies with their spouse, they pay for the first movie they're going to see that day on a Monday through Saturday. And when that movie ends, they sneak into at least one or two other movies. And, you know, I, I, I say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't go to the movies on Sunday, but you're going to steal from the movie theater by going to see three movies and only paying for one? Well, well they, these movies are way too expensive. They're gouging us. And on goes the rationalizations. Look again at verse 15. Even without God's perfect standard of righteousness, his law, everyone has that built-in sense of right and wrong. Everyone has a conscience, and you can't escape it. God's basic morality, that sense of right versus wrong, is written in our hearts. Now, Paul is not saying that our consciences and our fallen state are a perfect guide for morality. We live in a fallen world, and sin has impacted each of us very hard. But there is still that sense of right versus wrong. There's this tug of war that wages in your mind. You know you shouldn't do something, but you wind up doing it, and your conscience accuses you, and then you try to rationalize your wrongdoing to excuse your action. So we have our actions, we have our conscience. Lastly, we come to the secrets that we all have. Here's the final nail in the judgment coffin. Notice verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets of men. There are no closed doors with God. No places to hide. No secrets to be kept hidden. It will be revealed at the final judgment of God. If you are without Christ. You may look and act very respectable here today. You may have a good reputation. But God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks within your heart. He looks within your heart. Who are you on the inside? Hebrews 4.13 tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
to whom we must give an account. There is no hiding from God. Imagine that we installed another invisible device, this one that captures all the secret things that you have done and said and thought. Nobody else knows about them. But here in our service today, we're going to go one by one through the congregation. We're going to put them up on the screen right now for all to see. I don't know about you, but I'd be running for the door. <laughs> and I would never come back. Because I don't want you to know my secret sins. We can't hide from God. There's no escape. Jonah tried to hide from God. If you recall from your Old Testament, God said, go to Nineveh. Nope, I'm not going there. And so what did he do? He booked a Mediterranean cruise on Carnival Cruise Lines. I'm going that way. I'm not going where God wants me to go. And we all know how that cruise wound up. He didn't get very far. How many times have you done something you knew was wrong, but you did it anyway? Your conscience said, no, 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 don't do it. And you pushed that aside, and you went for it anyway. How many times have you done or said or thought things that reveal the sinfulness of your heart? I don't know about you, but for me, it happens every day. I remember when I worked uh, in a hospital to help pay my way through college and seminary, one of the women that I worked with uh, was a very nice lady, and we were talking, and everybody knew I was the guy going to seminary. I was the weird, holy guy in the place. And we were talking one day. Billy Graham was having a crusade. Now, that dates me right there. And she said, I don't like him. Oh, Terry, why don't you like Billy Graham? He's, he's, he's a great preacher. No, I don't like him because he says, I'm a sinner. And I don't like that. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. I said, well, Terry, I got news for you. I'm a sinner. You? You're going to seminary. I don't care where I'm going. <laughs> I say and think and do things that are just wrong. She had a hard time figuring that one out. But it led to many more conversations about the greatness and the goodness of God. But you see, you and I, we are guilty of God's judgment. What is the f sentence that a person faces outside of the court of God's, uh, in the court of God's law. You are facing more than a sentence of solitary confinement for a number of years. The Bible is saying that you face an eternal sentence of God's judgment. And, and Jesus is clear on this point. He says there are two roads leading to where you will spend eternity. Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter by it. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And there are few who find it. Which road are you on today? The narrow road that leads to eternal life or the broad road that leads to destruction? I trust that this message is helping you to see that if you are relying on your own goodness to persuade God you are worthy of heaven, and of escaping his judgment that you are in serious trouble. You are hopeless if you think you're good enough. And as Paul has just demonstrated, this prideful attitude in itself is enough to convict you. 
let alone of your wrong actions and violating your conscience and the secret sins that are known only to you and God. This is frightening news. It's like getting a diagnosis of cancer. You're just kind of humming along, and then you hear from the doctor, you have cancer, and it's terminal. And you're thinking, I have no hope. Spiritually, you have no hope. But yet, there is hope. A passage like this moves you, pushes you, drives you to the gospel and your need for the grace and forgiveness of God offered in the incredibly good and wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the final three words of our passage here. By Christ Jesus. I think there are a number of truths that we can mine out of just that phrase. First, we are judged by the standard of how Christ lived, and that standard was perfection. Jesus lived the life we cannot live. Second, he will be the one who judges us on that day, if you are without faith in him. And third, where you spend eternity is going to be based on your relationship to Christ. When, when people face Christ at the final judgment, they will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord out of faith or out of fear. But here's the incredible good news of the gospel. Before you face eternity, before you stand before him, he is giving you an opportunity to be forgiven. Sin runs deep in our hearts, friends, but grace runs deeper. Sin will take you far from God, but hallelujah, no one is beyond his reach. I don't care what you've done. The Bible says that God can take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. He takes your sin and he will bury it in the deepest sea and post a sign there that says no fishing permitted. How is this possible? John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I have this book here. And let's say this book reflects your life, the history of your life from birth till death. In this book, there are pages you're probably very proud of. Where you graduated from school, things you've done, the job you've had. But there's also some pages in this book that you don't want anyone to see. They're dark. They're evil. They're wrong. They're self-centered. And so here's the book of your life, and here, this hand represents your life. And there's this book. And we have Christ, who, who lived the life you could not live in order to pay a price you cannot pay. And that's the penalty of your sin. Jesus, on that cross, endured God's wrath on sin. I cannot even imagine what that experience of death was like. But in essence, he took the sin of your life and placed it on himself. This hand represents Christ. Resulting in your hand now being free from the weight of the guilt of sin. And free to now enter into a relationship with God. 
because your sins have been forgiven based on what Christ did for you that you cannot do for yourself. That, dear friends, is your hope. That, dear friends, is your insurance. John says in 1 John 5, these things are written so that you may hope you have eternal life, so that on a good day you might have eternal life. No, he says these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so salvation is offered to us, not as something you earn, but a gift from God. What do you need to do when someone offers you a gift? You reach out your hand and you take it, right? And you receive it. How can you do that today? By repenting of your sin. Now, what does the word repent mean? You acknowledge, first of all, you know what, God? I'm a big screw-up. I have sinned in thought, word, and action. And you know it all. You acknowledge that you are a sinner. And then you turn away from your sin by confessing, Lord, this is how I have sinned. And you turn to faith to believe in Christ and what he did to die in your place to pay the penalty for your sin. And then you turn toward God and ask him to forgive you of your sins and give you a new heart of faith in him, a desire to follow his path for your life. And if you have never done that, I want to give you that opportunity right now as we close and prepare for communion. Let's pray. Lord God, I don't know the condition of anyone's heart here, but I know the condition of my heart. And I am hopeless and helpless without the grace that you have poured out through the giving of your Son in Christ Jesus. And I pray for anyone here who has never made that commitment of faith. They are seeing today through this passage that they are hopeless and helpless without you. I pray, Lord God, that they would turn to you in faith that they would right now where they're sitting just pray silently to you Lord God I acknowledge that I'm a sinner I've screwed up in every possible way Lord I want to turn from my sin and in doing so ask that you would forgive me because of what Christ has done for me on the cross Lord, I want to place my faith completely in what Christ has done for me. And I ask you, Lord, to help me to live not for myself, but for you. And Lord God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning as we prepare for the table that if they have been caught up in the kinds of descriptions that have been made here, thinking, well, I'm better. I could never do that. That they would confess that to you. Lord God, I pray that as your people, we would seek to share this incredible, wonderful good news that Christ has died to pay the penalty for our sins. That Christ has proven that he is the Savior by his resurrection from the cross. And so, Lord, as we come to your table now, we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.